um, what is money? Money is a social technology. I think suffering is generally underrated because you suffer for a reason, you don't suffer for no reason. So we were talking about the move towards a cashless society and how you know you have lots of reasons why that might be a good thing. Is it appropriate for grown men to ride scooters? I bought a glass of wine in Chamonix. With Bitcoin? With Bitcoin. I'll end by saying, winter is coming. Welcome back, everybody. This is Dan Denning from Capital and Conflict, and it's been a long time uh, since we've been on the uh, podcast, but Nick O'Connor joins me today. Nick's a little ill, but we're glad to be back, and we've got a special guest with us today. Our special guest is Herman Brody. He's the founder of Prospecta Limited, and Herman, as you'll see shortly, is a specialist in behavioral economics. And uh, before we get into it, which is a, a very rich subject area about knowledge and the biases that you have that you may not know that you have and why investors uh, fear losses more than they desire gains. Nick, why don't you give uh, the listeners some background on how we met Herman and why we thought they should listen? Well, it was a couple of months ago we went, uh, Dan and myself went to, uh, we went to a, a sort of fairly small little conference seminar uh, organised by Russell Napier, which is about the history of financial markets. So over two days we had, we listened to all sorts of very interesting people, a variety of different perspectives from kind of value investors, big picture stuff, macro. And on the second afternoon, Herman came in and and talked about behavioural finance and and how we make decisions and how we can use that to make better decisions or, or understand how other people are acting and things like that. And uh, well, it immediately jumped out at, at both of us that that was the kind of thing that we wanted to share with with our readers, and also with our we've actually brought Herman in to talk to our staff here as well. So it's it's we're practicing what we preach here. It's it's all about better decision making, uh, better financial decision making, better business decision making, personal decision making, <laughs> really building this up. But um, I think an understanding of your sort of biases and and how your brain works and and how that manifests itself in the kind of decisions that you make is. It's fundamental, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a big build-up. It's basically going to change your your life. (laughs) Well, let's turn it over to you, Herman. You could start, you know, you could tell us a little bit about yourself and and how you got interested in behavioral economics. But but also, for those who don't know it, Mm -hmm. what is it? Yeah. Well, perhaps everybody is familiar with what we call traditional economics, the kind of economics you learn in school and university, the kind of economics that I also study. I'm a graduate of uh, the University of Manchester. And uh, after graduation, of course, they send you out in the world and you imagine that that's really the way that the world works. Now, I graduated in the, uh, the summer of 1987 and I went straight away to work for uh, a commodity trading company. Um, I started work in the month of October 1987 and a couple of a couple of weeks later the world economic went into well financial meltdown and uh, I mean it wasn't directly involved in the equity markets at the time but of course there were a lot of people who were active investors and they were busy at the same time trying to manage their personal portfolios at the time they were managing assets for the firm and it was absolute bedlam. Now, I look back and say it was Bedlam. I mean, I didn't know anything. I thought it was like that all the time, to be honest. It was only later that I realized that 
people are not supposed to be doing the kind of things that they were, I saw people doing at that time. And it sort of puzzled me and it drove a certain passion for financial markets, a, a belief that there's really something there to be understood. And uh, basically spent the next, you know, 30 years trying to figure out what that thing was. Now, I went through working in investment banking and once again, I kept on seeing people, my colleagues, uh, clients, doing all kinds of silly things. And it was only when we had a young trainee sat on the desk one day who gave me an academic paper that I read through it and it was like an epiphany for me. It's discussed, it was not the original paper by Kahneman Tversky, which is so famous, the Nobel Prize winner, but it, uh, it referred very heavily to that paper. And all of a sudden, things seemed to become very, very clear for me. Why it is that we do these things is because to some extent, we're very much hardwired to do so. And Kahneman, who was a psychologist, went on to become the most frequently cited uh, academic in the economics discipline. Can you back up for a second? Because we've all heard of him and we know him now. And that paper is sort of well understood in financial circles. But for mm -hmm. people who don't know who Daniel Kahneman is and Amos Tversky yeah. and what that paper was, can you describe that for them? Well, basically it set itself up as a, as a, cha a direct challenge to the expected utility theory, which was the dominant economic theory back in the 1970s, in the, back to the late, the early 1960s, the dominant economic theory at the time. And all of the economic models that we currently use, what we call traditional economics, are based on these principal assumptions. And he said that these assumptions about the economic agent, the human being, the investor, the saver, the consumer, they are systematically flawed. So it's made assumptions about the way that those economic agents behave, which bear no relationship to what, you know, uh, psychologists have been able to observe over the last 50 years. Now, is this the, what, what the economists would call the homo economicus, the sort of idea that uh, people make decisions purely on a rational basis, and that if that's the case, then you should be able to know what people are going to do all the time? Yes, essentially, that's the idea. I mean, we all want to be able to make some predictions about the future, about if we change a policy measure, you know, how are consumers going to respond to it? You know, if we lower the price, how many more people are going to buy the product? If we hike interest rates, how many more people are going to save money instead of spending it? So we need to make some predictions. Now, in order to make some predictions about anybody, you have to have some kind of model for their behavior. And this idea that the human being takes into consideration all of the available information, weighs that information appropriately, reasonably, and then will always act, always act as a function of all the information that we hold. So they'll, now, be, they'll the, be rational. This is the idea of rationality. And we are, of course, self-interested. This is one of the most important elements, that we are purely self-interested. Now, that was the basis of this model for the human being. And what Kahneman said was this is totally unrealistic. People actually don't behave in that way. Start with self-interest, for example. You know, there are many examples of people being... Uh, 
uninterested in their self, more interested in other people. Mm -hmm. uh, altruism, for example, there's no explanation in traditional economics for any kind of altruistic behavior. Unless you know, people have the idea that somehow they're going to be some reciprocity down the line, which in many cases, obviously, there won't be any. Uh, so the whole basis of this um, model of human behavior that he argued was flawed. Mm -hmm. And he showed back this up with evidence from his own experiments and published this paper in 1979, which directly challenged all of the assumptions of those traditional models. And it's this paper from 90, uh, 1979, which was called Prospect Theory, right. that, um, well, it is the most frequently cited paper in the whole of the academics, uh, economic discipline. I, I would encourage you, if you're listening and, and you find any of this interesting, go read that paper. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's still interesting. It's mm -hmm. still, it still uh, applies. And uh, it's not so um, academic that the, the layperson can't access it and benefit from it. Uh, and it's changed the way. It, so this is the foundation for behavioral economics. Now. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And it was a, a paper which referred to that original Kahneman paper that I, that I came across back all those years ago. Okay. And basically changed the trajectory of, uh, of my future professional career. I suppose a lot of it comes back because it's, it's, I mean, in, in a sense, it's broader than markets. It's that you can't understand what's going on in the world without properly understanding people. But it strikes me that if the models or the, the, the traditional models, they don't seek to, they actually marginalize the, the person, don't they? You have to reduce the person down to a sort of rational stereotype. You could apply that to lots and lots of different things. You could apply that to democracy. <laughs> Anything where people are making decisions that are affecting the world, which is the world, you have to understand uh, what's motivating them to do that. And you can't, yeah, you can't mar marginalize uh, human behavior in that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, with, uh, with that paper and with Kahneman's work, um, one of the things you talked about that, uh, when Nick and I heard you the first time was this idea of loss aversion. That seems counterintuitive to people uh, when they first hear. Can you can you describe what that is and how it works? Well, this was really fundamental to to Kahneman's idea, is and it was based on his observations of you know the, the choices that people really made. Mm -hmm. um, in traditional economics, it's assumed that people are risk averse. That we don't like risk. You know why take a risk if you can have something for sure. You know, we, if we can avoid a risk, we rather do so, unless we're very generously compensated for it. Mm -hmm. And this was the ideas of traditional economics. Uh, his argument was that this is not strictly true. And he was able to point to examples of where people are actually quite keen to take risks, um, even though they were not necessarily rewarded for doing so. And those situations were when people were faced with the sure outcome was a sure loss. And he said in those cases, people are actually quite prone to taking risks. We like to take risks. So let's, let's give an example, just because I think- So the, the, the idea is that, okay, let's say that you're, you're faced with a gamble. Now, I say that I'm gonna give you a hundred pounds and you can, you can take it or leave it. No strings attached, it's your money, you can do whatever you want. But if you prefer, you can participate in a gamble. And this gamble means choosing, you know, one of five envelopes. Now, in four of those envelopes, they're empty, there's nothing, which 
means you would lose the 100 pounds you already have. But in one of them, there's 500 pounds. If you're lucky enough to choose that one, then you'll, you'll get 500 instead. Now, we ask people what they would prefer. Now, if you think about expected returns, you have a one in five chance of picking the envelope with the 500 pounds. There's a 20% chance of 500, just choose 100. So it's expected return exactly the same place where you started. But he still discovered that an overwhelming number of people preferred just to take the money. They didn't like the risk. Really? They preferred to take the money and run. So they were risk averse, as would be predicted in expected uh, utility theory. But when we told people that, well, now you owe me 100 pounds, you're in debt by 100 pounds, you have to pay up. Alternatively, you can participate in a gamble. Now that gamble also involves choosing one of five envelopes. Four of them are empty, which means that in fact, you don't owe me anything anymore. But one of them, unfortunately, you would owe me 500 pounds instead. Mm. Mm. Ask people what they would prefer. Now, the expected return from that gamble is a one in five chance of perhaps losing 500 pounds. So minus 100 pounds, exactly the playing place where you started from. However, they discovered that an overwhelming proportion of people preferred to take the gamble. And therefore, the people were not necessarily loss risk averse. What they were averse to is losses. By gambling, you have the chance to get out of a losing situation without a loss. And it is this that is motivating people to gamble. So it's not the probabilities. It's the sign of the the monetary amount that motivated people to act. And you can think about this even on a very simple um, everyday basis. Let's say you're sitting in back-to-back in -back traffic on the highway and your lane is moving a little bit faster than the lane on the, your right-hand side and uh, you overtake a vehicle. Uh, you feel quite good about that. But then the traffic on the other lane starts to move a little bit faster and a vehicle overtakes you. Oh, you don't feel too good about that one, do you? In fact, you feel worse about the fact that somebody just overtook you than you felt pleasure from overtaking somebody in the first place. It works on pretty much every time that we have to compare ourselves to what are not more, not real losses or gains, but perceived losses or gains. So if we perceive a loss, we are motivated to gamble in order to make that loss good. Right. And if we perceive a gain, we, perceive, we feel it's quite comfortable, it's nice, but it's not as nice as to counteract the loss that we've experienced. In fact, they estimated for the average person, losing that hundred pounds hurts about twice as much as the gain of 100 pounds would bring pleasure. So losses hurt for the average person about twice as much as gains bring pressure. Now, let, let me, uh, this might complicate the discussion, but uh, one of the topics we frequently talk about on here is evolution mm -hmm. and why some behaviors are persistent, even if we can't always explain them. And one of the claims we've, we've come back to is that if you can't explain something, 
but it, it persists. It usually promotes your survival in mm -hmm. some way. So when you said at the beginning that this, this behavior is hardwired, mm -hmm. um, presumably it's hardwired because in, in the real world it, it helps us survive mm -hmm. or, or, or puts us in less risky situations. We have a bias towards not losing things that are valuable. Mm -hmm. But in investing, it, it doesn't help us. Is that the case? I mean, I'm trying to figure out yeah. whether it helps us or whether it hurts us, because in one case, it seems like it should. Well, Kahneman was at the time was convinced, this was back in the uh, late 70s, that it was hardwired. Right. I mean, he was, I mean, Tversky was a mathematician, so he was probably even more surprised than Kahneman by the results of their experiments. Of course, they tried it with graduate students at the beginning. And they discovered this result that people prefer to gamble, you know, after losses, but took the money after gains. They find it a little bit puzzling. So they went to try it with the members of the university faculty, who they considered to be, you know, smarter than the graduate students. And they got exactly the same result. Yeah. And then they tried this with the you know, wider audience, you know, sophisticated, naive, exactly the same result. After gains, about 70% of people like to take the money. After losses, about 70% prefer to gamble. They went to other countries, exactly the same thing. And I personally, I've worked with you know, professional investors, fund managers, hedge fund managers, you know, private wealth, all around the world, from Asia to the US, and it's always exactly the same thing. So it's a universal preference. Right. So it's reasonable to believe that we are hardwired. Now, in recent years, uh, behavioral finance has gone in the direction of neurofinance, where they, they put people in these magnetic resonance imaging machines, and they ask them to make gambles with envelopes and, and things like this. And they've discovered that gains and losses are not even processed in the same parts of the brain. So actually, sense. different areas of the mm. brain are activated when we perceive a gain compared to if when we perceive a loss, which probably explains why they're not perceived with exactly the same weight, because right. they're not actually even being measured on the same scale. Oh, wow, that's It's completely, completely different. So we are hardwired. Now, given that we are the evolutionary survivors, it stands to reason that at some stage over the last 170,000 years of human evolution, that it served us quite well. Perhaps if you, you, know, you hear a rustle in the bushes, it was a good idea to perceive this as a loss and, you know, and run for the hills. So it served us obviously well at some stage in our evolutionary history. But where it does not necessarily serve us well is in financial markets. Right. Um, especially if you are the kind of person who likes to watch financial markets very closely who likes to see the value of their portfolio on a daily basis or an hourly basis or even a tick by tick basis. If you are the kind of person who is prone to this behavior, which we call the disposition effect, the desire to take profits after gains and to, to gamble after losses, if you're prone to that kind of behavior, which the vast majority of us are, then financial markets are going to be a very, very uncomfortable place for you. Quite simply because, imagine a situation where you come in the morning and you, you look at your, your, the stock price of your favorite investment, and well, you know what, it's up 2% from where it was the previous day. Oh, this is quite nice. 
it brings you a lot of satisfaction. Then you go back an hour later and it's fallen back to where it was in the previous day's close. So it's unchanged. Now that move back, you perceive it now as a loss. But of course, you perceive it as a loss, which is twice as big as the pleasure that you got from the initial gain. You go back an hour later, it's again 2% higher. Oh, you feel good. But then an hour later again, it's gone back to where it was. You perceive it as a loss, but twice as big as the gain. And over the course of the day, they can do this many times, up, down, up, down, up, down, not going anywhere. But all the time, because of this disposition effect, because of our personal preference, our human psychology, we are steadily accumulating what I call negative well-being. We're feeling worse and worse and worse over the course of the day, quite simply because we're watching the price all of the time. Now, after we've accumulated sufficient negative well-being, typically we go out and do something silly, which is like, like to trade this yeah. stock or, or to sell it or, or to do something silly, which is not justified by you know, any new uh, news arrival or even any change in the valuation. As a result, you see, if you are very prone to this disposition effect, financial markets are a very uncomfortable place for us to inhabit. Um, and I think most people would typically agree with you. And this explains why you know, there are not many people who like to get involved in financial markets. Why is it that you know, so many households around the world own no risky assets whatsoever? It's because for those people, financial markets are just horrible, horrible, it's the, it's horrible, the horrible anguish. places. Yeah. But, well, if you think about it, um, if, at a rational level, when you, the way you describe it, you're basically saying natural behavior in financial markets doesn't correlate to positive performance, that you have to behave unnaturally in order to succeed. Absolutely. Let me ask you a question, because this, this relates to a guy that we worked with last year named Richard Smith, uh -huh. uh, who works in the States. He was an investor, and he found uh, over time, he was, he was a, a math PhD uh, yeah. by training, he was academic, but he found that he was uh, selling too soon and, or too late, right? So on, on the upside, when he was making money, he was selling it because he just thought, well, it's, it's, everything's gone as well as I expected, so I better take the money. Yeah. And then on the downside, he was uh, saying, well, if I just hang on a little longer, then maybe I can make it back up. And he also found that people did two things. They, they doubled down, so they cost average without good reason to. Or even worse, they say, well, that one's for my grandkids. That's the one he says. When a stock goes down a long way, he says, that's for my grandchildren. So you just change the timeline. and you. So it's the, it's the well, same yeah, idea. He, he, you create this justification for the behavior. Mm. But, but what if I, this is what I want to ask if, if you agree with his assessment. He said in both cases, the behavior was explained by the desire to avoid regret. Uh, the, in the, the avoidance of regret on the upside was, I will regret if instead of making uh, 100 pounds, I only make 50, so I'll take the 100 pounds now. And I will regret um, uh, losing 100 pounds, so I'll hold on and not have to, to regret crystallizing the loss. Is, is that, do you, do you think that's an accurate way of describing the same thing? Or is it two different things going no, on? No, it's the same thing, because regret is nothing more the anticipation of future losses. Yeah. So it's exactly the same thing. We're, you're thinking about, I have a loss on the table today, or I'm thinking about the loss that I could have. Right. 
is exactly the same thing. We, I can act to avoid a loss that I might incur, or perceived loss that I might incur in the future. So if I think I'm going to regret something, that means I'm already anticipating the perception of a future loss. So I've got a question about, about just specifically about cost averaging, because as you were talking, you know, that when we were, um, when we first heard you talk, we went through those exercises where, you know, you kind mm -hmm. of set us different questions and we was, you know, price moves X down, what do you do? And then mm -hmm. we, we were trying to analyze everyone's behavior. And one of the things I noticed that was quite interesting was, so me and Dan were pretty much the only writers there. Everyone else in the room was a seemed like they were a fund manager, an analyst. They were actively involved in financial markets. A quite an, an interesting audience. And lots of them said, well, if you believe in the share and it falls 50%, buy more. Just buy more because, you know, your cost average down and it's better value. But I wonder to what extent is that whole way of thinking, cost averaging, buying more, I'm still right, which is quite prevalent based on, you know, the small sample of people that were in the room with us. To what extent do you think that's just a manifestation of what you're talking about? They're just gambling from a position of loss. By the way, they won't listen to this. They, they, <laughs> they don't listen to this sort of thing, uh -huh. so you can speak freely. Um, I think it is a, a, a clear demonstration. <laughs> the problem is that when we are faced with a loss, okay, the, the driving motivation is to avoid realizing that loss. Mm -hmm. And it's remarkable the way that even uh, false beliefs have this uncanny ability to disguise themselves as very solid, robust, well-founded fundamentals. There is always a reason why a stock should go up, dozens of reasons why a stock should go up, and there are always dozens of reasons why a stock can go down. Now, we may choose to focus on some rather than the others. We may choose to give weight to some of those information more than the others. But there is no absolute truth. There is only opinions out there. Wow, that's a, that's a bold one, though, because you could talk to technicians um, or value investors. You know, they'll talk about book value net worth, intrinsic value, and technicians will talk about lines of support and lines mm -hmm. of resistance. I always find that interesting because on the one hand, there are people who say, well, we're just analyzing what's actually going on in the business. Mm -hmm. And that gives you an objective fact. And the technicians say the same thing. The chart is an objective fact. Mm -hmm. um, but you're saying it's, those are just, those aren't objective. There's just our perception. Yeah, even those are subjective. Right. Even those things are subjective. Now, we can try and bring as much objectivity into our work as possible. And this is admirable. And this is something that we definitely ought to be doing. But even those people who, let's say technicians, who would say, yeah, this is completely objective. You know, I'm completely uh, you know, distanced from this. I'm just reading you know, what the, the, the data is telling me. But the fact is that we do give weight to some things more than the others and that weight that we apply is the direct uh, directly linked to the engagement that we have at the time so this if we're long yeah you know, that support line is is really reliable and good but if we're bearish it's oh well you know often these points are broken so so it's not objective nobody can be genuinely objective unless you know you go to the absolute extreme 
where you're doing strictly quant analysis and an algorithm is making all of your decisions. Mm-hmm. And this is, a, this is the background that I come from personally, as I come from a quant background. But even in a quant situation, I've had people who will switch the quant model off and switch it on according to the way it suits them at that time. Yeah. So even if you go to the extent where you want to separate the human being from the decision-making process, you still have somebody who has their finger on the on-off button. So I have never ever seen a situation of anybody who's actively investing in the market that is 100% objective. There is a nuance to that though, which I think is quite practical and quite useful, especially if you're an investor, which is something you touched on when we when you, when you we saw you talk last time, which is that there's two ways of looking at things. When you first enter into a position, you're more objective at that point because you haven't perceived any loss or, or realised any gain. It's at, at day dot, you're mm. into the position. It, you know, you're more objective then than, so when we were talking about cost averaging, then you're at a position of loss. So th- the fact that you're already, the position's moved on, that's warped your decision-making as to what you do next. I'm not sure you are more objective though, j- just because it's sooner in the relationship, because at that time you probably have maximum optimism, whether you're long or short, that, that you've made the correct decision. It's just that you don't have any assessment uh, in reality of, well, that's true. against you but in terms of the, the things we've been discussing about you know um, gambling more from a position of loss or, or right. being conservative yeah. once you've got there you don't have any of that about, emotional yeah, that's true. so you're about as objective as you're gonna be as you can get. on that yeah. level so it's yeah. that's that's worth remembering because one of the things that that someone taught me right when I first started in this business was just a way of thinking about things when you enter a position just write down your argument then so that you, when when you get down the line, say a year later, you're 90% down, for instance, <laughs> you can refer back to what your original argument was when you entered the position and you, you can't, well, it's to try and anchor you to something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think there's quite a lot of merit in that because it, it links you back to a world where you didn't have the loss mm-hmm. and you didn't want to gamble and double down. It's funny that you mentioned the word anchor. Mm-hmm. Because in the context of this uh, discussion, it, it would be quite frightening for some people. And I found that when I read uh, Michael Lewis's book, uh, which is about Kahneman and Tversky, called The, uh, mm-hmm. what is it, the Undoing, the Undoing Project. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if, if you become aware that you were unaware of these sort of subterranean, subconscious biases in what you thought was judgment, mm-hmm. you thought you were making a rational, objective decision based on clear facts and then reaching a conclusion based on probabilities and risk. Um, but you're unaware of these other things that are influencing your decisions. And when we say that they're hardwired, um, I want to ask you about whether these are biases that can be overcome, whether they're behaviors that we can modify, and then more specifically with respect to anchoring, what are the chief cognitive biases that, that you've identified uh, that affect people as investors, affect mm-hmm. investors negatively. So some of the mm-hmm. ones you mentioned when we talked were anchoring, mm-hmm. the availability bias, the endowment effect, and the present bias. Those were the ones I jotted down. But, mm-hmm. but maybe you could talk about any of those and say, how do you know what it is? And then how do you, 
how do you try and correct mm -hmm. that bias in your in your decision making process? Right. Well, the word bias is never one that sat comfortably in uh, my vocabulary okay. because it it sort of suggests that there's something wrong with it, and these are there is nothing wrong with it. The things that we call bias, I prefer to call them preferences, is that. I say if we're hardwired it's because it is useful. It's just not particularly useful in the that particular endeavor right. or for investing, but in every other situation, it is. It helps us more than it hurts us. So I don't particularly like the idea of bias, but um, the brain works in a certain way in order to uh, allow us to make maximum use of what is our limited cognitive ability. So we are very smart, we have a lot of brain power, but that brain power doesn't allow us to do all of the things that we are patently able to do. It's essential for us to take some some shortcuts, if you like, in order to you know be able to do more with what we have. And the brain has evolved in that way, and this for this reason we've you know risen to the top of the food chain. So to turn around and say, well those those kind of behaviors are then biases or, or wrong or something to be you know eliminated from our uh, thinking it seems a little bit strange it's just human traits it's really. just human traits which most for the most part are helpful for us it's just in investing it's not now if you had the opportunity let's say you could take a pop a pill or you have a medical intervention which will you know, go into your brain and, and cut away the part which would take away your disposition effect for example then you would be uh, you know a much better investor but chances are that you'd be completely hopeless in every other thing that you're doing in the rest of your life and you wouldn't enjoy it that much either so the idea that it's a bias is not one that I you know I really subscribe to but these are reliable preferences so what we try to do, and the advice that I give to the clients, is that you, you cannot switch it off. You don't really want to switch this off either. But what you want to do is to make sure that those preferences don't act in a way which are harmful for you in your investing activities. So you have to build this into your your process, your thinking process, your decision-making process, so that you can make decisions which uh, you're not going to be feel too happy about it it's going to feel a little bit uncomfortable it's going to go against the grain of your you know, your gut feeling but in fact it actually helps you to perform better so the simple example is not looking at your stock portfolio too often if you're suffering from the disposition effect now that is something that everybody can do mm -hmm. and it will actually help them in their performance don't look too often now, you may be tempted to look, oh, you're curious to find out how that stock is performing. But if you can resist that temptation, you perform better. Well, what's the main danger when you look? Is it because what you mentioned before? Yeah, because a lot, of the, a lot of the stock price movements in the short term are just random. It's just noise. It's just a matter of who traded that stock the last. Somebody put in a buy order, somebody put in a stock order. Most of the moves contain no information whatsoever. Mm. It's just noise if you're looking at your stock every 20 minutes the price difference you see on a 20 minute interval are just most of the time it's just random the vast majority of the 
the, the price signal you're getting is just noise. This is really bad news for, for uh, companies like Reuters and Bloomberg, though, because you, you, know, you go on and you say, uh, FTSE down on oil price, mm -hmm. uh, FTSE up as copper prices strengthen. So there's this tendency to attribute every single price movement yeah, to, to something. something. Yeah, right. this is really, and this is really wrong. And this, you know, this, this generates, this creates additional error uh, for investors who are watching. You'll see a big story about, you know, Trump and uh, it's a negative story. Let's say, for example, and all oh, the Dow is down, you know, 0.2 of a percent. You know, it, it's just noise. Right. It's unrelated to, you know, anything that could possibly have been happening since you know this morning or since the close on the previous day so how often would you noise? then you know if you if you were making a suggestion or just tell tell us about how you manage your, your money mm -hmm. how often would you look in a, in a structured way like i will look at seven o'clock every sunday evening and mm -hmm. that's my time window and i'll or, or would you look once a year or you know you have to look sometimes i guess well personally i i mean i don't involve in i don't buy individual stocks so i invest only in funds but I, I, you know, rebalance my portfolio across various funds mm -hmm. on a regular basis, once a year on my birthday. <laughs> I set myself the task, so I must look and see, you know, how things have performed, and maybe I, you know, rebalance into, you know, various areas. I do this once a year on my birthday. And do you but look? That's, that's in my own. In between, I don't. This does not help me to to look. I think there's something in that, though, in in terms of imposing. Um, structure on because essentially we're talking about the brain which is loose and unstructured in this mm. way that is our decision making will change depending on different inputs you have to impose some level of order on that which is what Richard Smith mm -hmm. who we mentioned he did they built a computer program to help you mm -hmm. decide when to where to set your stop and stuff like that didn't he but it strikes me that that's what it comes down to find some level of order that you're comfortable with that doesn't impair your ability to mm. Why did you I mean, pick your birthday? Yeah, because I, because <laughs> no, I, I, can re I can remember it. You know? That's the one. April Fool's That's the day that I can remember once a year. You know? For me, it's Christmas Day. <laughs> and it doesn't. But, it's never ruined your birthday, or you felt like you're giving yourself uh, a present. Not really, because usually the the um, when I when I look at it, it's it's usually quite good. <laughs> it's usually quite satisfactory. Nothing dramatic. Yeah. That doesn't mean I. You know, I, I live in a cave for the rest of the year. I'm still informing myself. Yeah. So it's important to me. But if I see a news headline, I don't rush immediately to see the effect that it has on, on my portfolio. Right. Because a lot of the time, it's just, it's just noise. And it could you know, provoke me to do the wrong thing at the wrong time. So this is the, uh, that's the idea behind it. Um, and of course, having a, your birthday imposes some rigor. Which means that I have to go and have a look. You know, right. I feel if I don't do it, I feel a little bit guilty. Right. And you remember probably during the during the uh, the great financial crisis when you know, everybody knew that their portfolios were underperforming, and instead of opening you know the annual statements of the four hundred one k's, the president they put this in a drawer and this was stuffed with you know five years of statements that nobody ever opened. And you open these letters afterwards, and you. You say, well, I'm glad I didn't look at it that time because it, you know, I've recovered everything in the meantime. It's because yeah, you could have sold at that point if you'd looked. Yeah, had you looked, you may well have done the wrong thing and, and basically gone out and sold at the wrong time. I remember seeing a story around, and it's apocryphal, so I'm not sure if it's, it's true, but yeah. it was that people were trying to correlate uh, sell-offs in the market uh, with the publication of, of uh, 
annual performance statements for 401k funds or superannuation funds in Australia that, yeah. that the day people got that notice in the mail was the day the you know, volume was up. And I don't think it was true, but yeah. it did make sense that you know people, they're better off just binning that or, or maybe just opening it on Christmas Day or yeah. birthday. Yeah. Well, there's, there's an element of that which we obviously haven't discussed yet, but that obviously we've talked about the individual, so me making a decision or you making a decision with your money, but obviously when you aggregate all of those people together, you know, you get a big sell-off in the market, you get lots of people mm-hmm. with a very similar disposition, is that the right word? Yeah. So they have, they're in the same phase of the bias process, and that that is where you get, that's that goes some way to explaining large market moves, doesn't it? Because it you get all you get people selling all at the same time or buying yeah. at the same mm-hmm. time based on these biases, which is that's people try and trade that sort of stuff. You well, know? this is the this is the underlying driver for what we call you know the herd mentality. Right. Uh, you've certainly heard about this herding, and you think uh, people like to you think that it's this idea that you know one investor is looking what the other is investing. Oh, I'm going to copy that guy, and the other one's going to do what the other one is doing, and they're running together in a herd. But herding doesn't work like that. Herding occurs, could still occur even if no investor had the knowledge of what the other investors were doing. It's because we're all hardwired in the same way, we're all motivated to act in the same way at the same time. And as a result, even independently, we would still hurt. Really? That's a really yeah. interesting way of thinking. But that, that makes total sense, doesn't it? Because it's a brain state thing. Yeah. Everyone gets into the same mindset and then act a certain way because they're hardwired to do so. Mm. But because we're all human and we're all in the same market, yeah. we tend to all do the same. So I like same way the same stimulus. Yeah, yeah, the same stimulus. That's the part I think that I was most uncomfortable with as someone who likes to believe in free will. That, that when you suggest that something's hardwired. Mm. Uh, it's deterministic in a way that uh, even if you're aware of it, and even if you, uh, even if the preference, as you describe it, is generally helpful, mm-hmm. uh, as investors, it's almost, it feels like it's almost a fatalistic conclusion to make that it, you, you can't help but be this way. You cannot. So the most really you can help is just to be aware of it. Yeah, it's you, the more than be aware of it is to build this into your process. So how so would you, that it how can would you do not that then? help you? So the, as the, most, the more rigid you make the structure, yeah. the more rigid you make the decision making, you decide in advance, what factors am I going to give weight to? What weight am I going to give to it? How am I going to behave in a given situation? Um, you know, how much, what information sources am I going to use? How frequently am I going to look at my portfolio? All of these things, you can put them into rigid structures. The more that you can do mathematically, the better. But even then, there's always going to be some uncertainty into a... Uh, it's not just risk, it's also uncertainty in investing. Which means there's always going to be a path which is going to be intuitive, if you like. And the more robust that you can make the entire process, the better outcomes you are likely to achieve. Now, I'll give you a simple example with another little gamble. Let's say that I'm running a lottery and the price from this tombola is £100 again. And there are 100 tickets for this lottery. Now, I've got 100 tickets, £100 price. Each of those tickets is, you could say, worth a pound each. And if I give you the opportunity to buy one of those tickets for 90p, probably you say, oh, it's good value. Yeah, I'll have one, I'll have one of those tickets without any hesitation. 
Now I tell you that the other 99 tickets, I own them. <laughs> Do you still want to buy that one for 90p? <laughs> Well, okay, I'll do it, but I don't like it anymore. Right. Now, the value of that ticket did not change. Why is it suddenly, yeah, you want it, and all of a sudden now you don't want it any longer? Now, you felt something there when I told you the other 99 were mine, and everybody else felt the same thing. And that sort of thing is taking place in the financial markets all of the time. Yeah. Now, why did you perceive this differently? Quite simply because when I talked about the one ticket, you created a reference point in your mind with you as being the winner of this lottery. You were not aware of the holders of the other tickets, so you didn't think about them. Your attention was solely focused on yourself and your ticket that you can get for a discount price. As soon as I talk about the remaining 99 tickets and I own them, suddenly your reference point changed. And the most obvious winner of this lottery was no longer you, but me instead. And who wants to buy a lottery ticket when somebody else is going to be winning it? Mm -hmm. But the probability that somebody else would have won it is exactly the same. But you just didn't perceive them. That didn't have your attention. That was not your reference point. Can I ask you a question on that? Uh, because if, if it's just me and I don't know uh, who owns the other 99, but yeah. I make the assumption that there's 99 other people yeah. uh, that each own one ticket and they may be paid the same price, yeah. then I feel like I'm, I've got a chance. Yeah. I've got the same chance as the, the other 99 people. But if you tell me that you own the 99 tickets, then it's just you and me. It's yeah. not really a market. Yeah. So now I feel like, well, he's got 99 chances yeah. and I only got one. Yeah. So is that, is that, I mean, does it make a difference? Uh, if, if there's if there's 100 people in the market versus two? But the thing is, it should not make any difference because one, the lottery is a random thing anyway. So yeah. the only thing that you should pay attention to is what is the fair value of that lottery ticket, yeah, which is one pound, and what is the price that I'm going to pay for this asset. Now, if you can buy an asset for below its fair value, now you can argue whether 10% is big enough a margin for this risk or not, but... This is a different argument. You should always then pay it, irrespective of who the others. So the fair value in the second example and the price were exactly the same. In fact, no, there is no difference between those two examples, apart from your own human perception. Now, you should take the human perception out of this, and in that example, you simply use the maths. And so in this situation, the maths say that X, I should do it. And I should take my human perception out of it. Because this is an example. There's no uncertainty in this lottery. It's pure risk. Yeah. Now, when there's pure risk, the maths should do all of the work. 100% of the work. And you should take the human being out of it. And that is then building your process. That should be part of your process. Can I ask you to uh, uh, clarify... For some people, what the difference is between uncertainty mm -hmm. and risk, because we use yeah. sometimes are using interchangeable. Yeah, they're not they're the same not thing. The same at all. If risk is when you all of the outcomes and all of the probabilities of those outcomes are known in advance, when that is those conditions are satisfied, you're talking about risk. 
when you're dealing with risk, the maths should do all of the work, 100%. There should be no room for human judgment. Uncertainty is when you have not all of the outcomes are known and not all of the probabilities of those outcomes are known. There you have you have um, uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And when you have uncertainty, there is no maths you can really do. It's always going to require some kind of uh, intuition, some sort of judgment. But that's, some sort that's of, everything. Some sort of gut, gut feeling. Now, buying a stock, a lot of that is risk. The bulk of it is risk. And so a lot of the maths should do you know, the, 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 the groundwork. But there's always going to be some uncertainty as well. I mean, most of the outcomes that are, you know, are likely to occur for a stock like Microsoft are known in advance. And the probabilities thereof are all pretty well known as well. There's only a small amount of uncertainty and a large part of risk. But then when you have a, you know, a, you know, a new company, startup company, new technology, uh, new management, new industry, yeah. um, there's not much which of that is going to be just risk. A lot of it is going to be uncertainty. Wasn't that the title of the original, the Kahneman paper? Was it, was it decision-making under uncertainty? Decision-making under uncertainty. Yeah. But in fact, that's misleading because actually decision-making under risk. <laughs> so he's confused. So, uh, but that was in 1979. Yeah. yeah okay. So, and with, in fairness to Kahneman, he was not a, he was not a mathematician. He was a pure psychologist. Oh, we could go on. I'd love to keep going on, but we have to share you with the rest of our business and then with Charlie Morris. Two final questions for you. Um, how can people read more of what you write or hear from you? How do they find you on Twitter? Is there a website they should go to if they're interested in this sort of material? Well, um, my website is um, for the, the firm is prospector.limited. So prospector.limited written out in full. Okay. Um, what we do as a firm is to basically to to do research using un, you know, published research from uh, you know, academics in the field in finance and in social scientists. And we bring these together and put them in a way which is of practical use to, to investors. Mm. So that's the, uh, that's the ambition of the firm. Do you advise, just quickly, do you advise businesses so beyond, you know, beyond just making decisions about investing? Because it strikes me that some of this is applicable or lots of it is applicable to the way that you would make decisions about just any business right um i personally concentrate on the financial services because you know that's my background and when i speak to investors i can we, we share the same language but of course the uh the the lessons of behavioral finance uh, behavioral economics are pertinent for basically any industry where they're dealing with you know uncertainty and risk uh, where the the difference in you know sterling terms, money terms of a a good decision or a slightly less good decision are huge. Right. Um, all of these places are areas where the lessons that we're talking about today are valid, and for these reasons, I do work with other experts in other industries, so like construction project management, for example. Uh, healthcare, uh, even charities, uh, but I don't personally do this work. But specialists in those industries 
talk to other people with whom they share the same language, but based on the same pool of research that we discuss between us. Okay. So the same message is going out to, to several different industries at the same time. It's just that my own personal preference is in the financial services. Well, on that subject, my, my final question to you would be, are, are you working on a, a book uh, to sort of present what you've learned about this to investors, or are you uh, searching for a newsletter publisher? <laughs> well, the, 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 the core of this, um, the, the lessons that we originally learned many years ago, of course, we, I wrote these down into the course material. Yeah. So we, this was published as uh, you know, the, the course for Practical History of Financial Markets. Um, and at Edinburgh Business School, we, we teach this course also. Yeah. Uh, more specifically, um, I'm writing a book at the moment. All right. Uh, it will be published uh, the early part of next year by Harriman House. But it only covers a very narrow part of the research that we're doing. And it concerns the way that clients choose their fund managers or their financial advisors. What is the behavioral background behind the choices that people make about who should manage their money or who should advise them. Mm. Um, in short, when we judge our financial counterparties, it's not done along a single dimension. It's not good or bad. In fact, we choose our financial counterparties along two uh, very clear dimensions. The first dimension, we make a judgment about the other person's intentions towards us. Are these people you know, really on my side or are they on their own side? You know, when they come to a crossroads at some stage in the future where you have a choice to make, where you can go left or you can go right, both of the alternatives are permissible and are justifiable. But one, you go right, you put the client's interest first, you go left, you put the, your own firm's interest first. What do I think that person's going to do? What are their intentions towards me? Mm -hmm. And then the second judgment is about, you know, how competent we believe those people are to, to act on those intentions. Mm -hmm. And we always judge those service providers along those two dimensions. Now, social scientists will call the combined judgments along those two dimensions as trust. So this book is about the science mm. of trust mm. in the choice of our financial service providers. That's now, having you have a, a high trust relationship, I also demonstrate it has very big advantages, both for the client and for the service provider. However, whether that high trust relationship exists or not, depends solely on what the service provider does. And it's separated completely to the client. So the task of creating such a relationship falls solely on the service provider. Mm. And so what this book is aimed at those service providers in order to show them what it is that they need to do. Right. Okay. That sounds fascinating. Well, sure, well, you can look forward to that uh, yeah. in the early part of uh, next year from Harriman House. To 2018. Yeah. Okay. Well, I hope, hope we can hear from you before then. Uh, thanks for coming in. If you're just joining us, which you're probably not if you're still listening, <laughs> uh, we've been speaking with Herman Brody from uh, the founder of Prospecta Limited, uh, and you can find him at prospectalimited. No, prospecta.limited. I'll try and put it in the show notes. Yeah. We'll put a link in. Okay. All right, Herman. Thanks very much. You're welcome. Cheers.